All right, Jesse, last week's story was frustrating, but also quite inspiring. What's the story this time around? An abusive relationship rife with conflict and infidelity ends in murder when one member of the couple knows too much about the other's secret life. The resulting investigation reveals massive conspiracy, fraud, and the inner workings of a dangerous motorcycle gang. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey. And this is Love Murder. Hi, Andy. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, podcast about users, losers, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on TikTok and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. If you are enjoying this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe, and review to help new people discover the show. Also, if you're interested in supporting the show more directly, head on over to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod where you can learn all about the different tiers of support. This week, we're so excited to shout out amazing new set of patrons. Welcome to Jenny R., Sarah S., and Britt, Cash M., Jasmine B., and Julie R., Lakita V., Jackie G., and Kylie M., and Susan C., Welcome, everyone. We cannot thank you enough for your support and hope to see you around at next month's, I guess this month's happy hour, maybe. So fun. So fun. And what is also going to be fun, guys, is listening to this crazy case I have for you today. Well, sad, sad, but occasionally there will be some levity, I'm sure, because, Andy, you always provide the lols. (laughs) Only where they're deserved. Yeah, where they're appropriate, let's say. But let's start by talking about a woman. April Kaufman was a force of nature. On May 9th, 2012, the radio personality was filling the Ocean City, New Jersey airwaves with her trademark throaty laugh and sharing news about her latest good works in military veterans affairs. April was a very busy woman. She volunteered for the Wounded Warrior Project, the U.S. Coast Guard, the American Red Cross, Toys for Tots. I mean, you name it. April just wanted to help. But veterans' issues especially struck close to home for her. Her husband, Dr. Jim Kaufman, was a former Green Beret and had received the Purple Heart after a tour in Vietnam. April had just successfully advocated for the largest hospital on the Jersey Shore area to accept TRICARE. Now hundreds, if not thousands, of active-duty military and veteran patients would have access to free health care, including dialysis, radiation, and chemotherapy. April intended to continue to fight to make TRICARE more readily available across the state and then the country. For her work, she had just received the New Jersey State Governor's Jefferson Award. As her co-host congratulated her, April said with emotion, I did the work. I put my boots on the ground and lobbied using my own money, time, and airfare. My bottom line is, if nothing else, is to leave my legacy on this planet to my beautiful daughter and my grandchildren. April's daughter, Kim, was the other great accomplishment of her life. April had only been 17 when she gave birth to Kim. The two had really grown up together, it felt like, and they had become two incredibly hardworking, gifted, and beautiful women. 
At 47 years old, April was a business owner, philanthropist, radio personality, and beloved mother and grandmother. She was at the top of her game. Just then, the microphone cut out a little bit, and she said, oh, I feel like I'm on borrowed time. April's audience laughed along with her, but the offhand comment would carry a different meaning only one day later, because April was on borrowed time. Someone or someones wanted her dead. The fatal betrayal of April Kaufman would lead investigators down a rabbit hole of infidelity, massive fraud, illegal drug rings, motorcycle gangs, and shocking allegations. It would take years and one dedicated daughter's tireless quest to get justice. And when it came, Andy, it came hard, eventually resulting in two additional deaths and seven additional people arrested. Wow. This is a wild episode. My main source today is the book The Doctor, The Hitman, and The Motorcycle Gang by Annie McCormick. I also watched an oxygen show called Killer Motives. And there's this great three-part documentary that's on Discovery Plus. I found it on Amazon, which I'm going to talk about more at length later so I don't give even more away at this point. So let's kick it off by talking a little bit more about April's background and how she became such a fierce advocate for veterans' rights and resources. April Christine Favazzo was born on October 27, 1964, into a very difficult childhood. Both of her parents had significant substance abuse problems. It sounds like her father wasn't really in the picture right from the get-go. And then her mother had a string of boyfriends, maybe some husbands, but significant others, some of whom abused April as a child and teenager. And her mother also very much struggled with substance abuse. So she was raised largely by her grandmother. But along the way, April was called by her mother, the chosen one, which may have sounded nice if it were not for the fact that what her mother was referring to was the fact that she had kept April while putting April's brothers and sisters into foster care. Oh, my God. Yeah. So you can imagine that this filled April with a tremendous amount of guilt. Yeah. And I don't know exactly how that little nickname was trotted out, if it was like, you should feel lucky. I don't know. They didn't really get into it, but I can imagine the weight of that feeling. Yeah. Her life changed forever at 17 years old when she became a mother. Her baby was born Kimberly Connor. She was born in 1982. And Kim really became the driving force in April's life. Though she did marry Kim's dad, they were both teenagers, and it just did not end up working out. Although they did end up staying friends for the rest of their lives. And I think that April had pretty much full custody, and she operated as a single mother for the most part. But I know that Kim's father was still in her life, at least. So this was not a situation where he just kind of like took off. So both parents were really doing their best here, but it was really April who stepped up and was primarily in charge of raising Kim. That's just kind of (laughs) the way it went back in the day. The mother usually got the kid. Yeah, but I mean, like, there's still that, those expectations on society. 100%. April earned her cosmetology license, and she quickly became a go-to makeup artist and hairstylist for a modeling agency in Atlantic City that worked primarily with Miss America contestants. Wow. 
<laughs> so a lot of stage makeup, a lot of big hair, because it's also Miss America in the 80s. A lot of hairspray. A lot of hairspray she was packing over here. April was fun, vivacious. She was beautiful herself. She always looked immaculate. I really love the looks from the 80s and the early 90s with the volume in the hair. She definitely had that look down. She could be blunt. People said that she always was going to speak her mind. If she believed in something, she was going to go forward and not worry about if she was ruffling anybody's feathers. But she also had a talent for people. People liked her. They wanted to be around her. She had an energy. And also people really like that forthrightness. Kim recalled her mother as a sister, best friend, mother hybrid who still managed to be a disciplinarian and do her best to provide all she could for her daughter on a shoestring budget. Oh. Yes. It's kind of like a Gilmore Girls situation without the rich parents. Yeah. It's just like she was so young when she had her that they went through everything together, really felt like they were on a journey together. And there was something about their closeness because April never had any additional children that made them feel like more than a parent and daughter duo. So April eventually opened her own salon and she instilled a great work ethic in her only child, as well as great values. One of those values was to always help others. No matter how down and out you were, there was somebody else who was in need. And as a human being, it's our job to be in service to others. So even as the mother-daughter duo lived paycheck to paycheck, April would still volunteer her time. So she would do free manicures and pedicures at a local retirement community. So sweet. Which is so sweet to buoy the spirits of the women there. She was also very early involved in a lot of charities involving children, and she was interested in veterans' rights pretty early on. She married for a second time in Kim's childhood to a local doctor, but the marriage was heading to divorce by the time Kim was in high school. Sometime in the late 90s or very early 2000, while her divorce was being finalized, April finally found the one. The third time's the charm here. His name was Dr. James Kaufman, and he went by Jim. Jim was 15 years older than April and had been frequently visiting the salon, most likely to get FaceTime with the very pretty proprietess. But they did have a lot in common despite this age gap. Jim also had had kind of a rough childhood. I didn't get a terrible lot of details about it. It sounds like, if anything, it was more emotionally cold, emotionally abusive, or he was keeping the physical abuse to himself. But he just kind of obliquely mentions this rough childhood. He also was kind of that pull yourself up by the bootstraps jersey type of kid that she was. And the time he met April, he was also separated from his wife and heading towards divorce. So they were situationally very similar in life at this point. They both liked nice cars, speed, essentially, fast rides, and motorcycles. Early on in their courtship, they began to take long motorcycle rides together. On one trip, they visited the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. April was deeply moved by Jim's heartbreaking stories of being in Vietnam. She was less moved, however, when she discovered only a few months into dating that Jim was not exactly separated from his wife oh, no. and was... In fact, still living with her. Oh, my God. Aww. Ballsy. 
Yeah. So April dropped him like a rock when she found this out. However, he did end up moving out, getting an apartment, getting separated, filing for a divorce. And with all of that in place, April ended up taking him back. But I would say that's a red flag right there. Yes. Why are you lying about it? Yeah, why are you lying about it? Because she's going through it too. She understands the process. She understands that you just can't get divorced overnight. You could say, I'm really interested in you, but I'm still working things out about my separation with my wife and I'm still living in the home. Somebody who's getting divorced would absolutely understand that. Absolutely, especially someone who's been in, this is her third time dealing with a relationship situation. Yeah, so soon after they got back together, They went on a cruise for Valentine's Day 2002, and they ended up eloping on this cruise ship. What? Yeah. I don't know if it was planned or if it was kind of like international waters, let the captain marry them. I am not entirely sure. But in any case, they ended up getting married, and it sounds like there was no family or friends present for this elopement, which is generally what eloping means. Yep. (laughs) So author Annie McCormick reported that April did lose some friends over this marriage. Wow. I think it might have been because they were, though she wasn't friends with his wife, they were all in the same social circles. Got it. So it might have been one of those situations where it wouldn't look great if from the wife's perspective, this is the other woman because she didn't know that he was still living with his wife. And then they run off and get married. And I think he had two children from his previous marriage. She, of course, has Kim. So this this was probably a little bit of a hot gossip situation back in the early 2000s in Linwood, New Jersey. So by the early 2000s, Jim was a very successful endocrinologist. And the couple became well-known for their lavish parties and fundraisers that they held at their very large Linwood home. Apparently, they had this... 1,200 square foot entertainment space. It was like this beautiful, I forget how they described it exactly, but it was like gigantic. And you could have like a full-on ball in it, essentially. It was like an atrium type situation. I wonder how big the house was. I don't think I got a square footage, but it looks pretty big. It's kind of one of those, it's not like showy mansion-y though. It kind of looks like it's like very big, but kind of low slung and like set back from the road just a little bit. Yeah. It doesn't look like super duper fancy. Like Soprano's house. Yeah, it's very Soprano's house. Kim was in college when the couple wed. And though obviously there was some drama about them getting together, she was cautiously optimistic for her mother's third marriage. Her respect for Jim and her compassion towards him definitely deepened because she had received an assignment in college to interview somebody who was active duty or had served in the military and asked them about their experience. Yep. And since he had been a Green Beret, and she knew this from her mom, she asked him, and he told her a really gut-wrenching, harrowing story about how the Viet Cong had ambushed his camp and had stabbed him with a bayonet. He had been stabbed in the gut. And he had been left for dead, essentially. And the rest of his platoon had mostly been killed. And he knew that there was like, I think another platoon somewhere in the vicinity or something. But he said before he he left to get help, 
he had collected all of their dog tags, all of the men who were left, because he said that the most important thing in the world to him was bringing those dog tags home to their families so they would know what happened to their boys. So you can imagine Kim's in college going like, wow, okay, this guy has seen some shit. He's an honest-to-goodness hero. That, I think, was what he was awarded the Purple Heart for, or at least that's I think that's what he said he was awarded the Purple Heart for. Did he show her his scar, his battle wound? He did not not show her his battle wound. I'm just curious because I'd imagine a bayonet through the gut would leave a pretty graphic scar. I'm assuming that he must have shown April. Could you imagine if it's like an appendicitis scar? Yeah, or it's like not there. Yeah, so I don't know about that. Another thing about the Purple Heart was that April told a friend or Kim or maybe both that he had misplaced his Purple Heart and a new one had come in the mail. Which I, I don't really know mail if order that's how that works. Heart. Yeah, mail order Purple Heart. So even though everybody at this moment is definitely buying this, I feel like, Andy, I'm picking up on some skepticism about this story that Jim is telling. Just a little. <laughs> it might be my slight Halloween hangover. or it might just be me being me or your gut instincts about this case trust in my gut pun intended you're trusting your gut well throughout the decade that jim and april were married april certainly blossomed i mean she was doing well on her own before jim but with jim's help they ended up opening another salon i think they might have closed her salon opened another salon in a different area they also opened a cafe She found a cause in veterans affairs and a real calling in radio. She was excellent on radio, everyone said. She watched her only daughter graduate college, get married. She got a great job at a Fortune 500 company and eventually had her beautiful grandsons. So also Kim's children called April Mimi. Oh my God, no way. Yeah, that's what Andy's mom's called by the grandchildren. At 47, April seemed to really have it all. Only a few very close confidants knew the truth, which was that all was not well in April and Jim's marriage. And it really hadn't been for a very long time. Okay, so how long are we talking now? I mean, shortly after they eloped, basically. (laughs) So it seems like it started with him just saying some very cruel things. Like, these situations always start little by little, and... First, she got used to him saying some off statements, some very cruel things to her. Things like when she had a cancer scare, he said, well, if you get it, you probably deserve it. Like essentially saying she was a bad person and she deserved to get cancer. Excusez-moi? Yeah. No one deserves cancer. No. He kept saying like little things and then kind of tearing down her confidence They had started those two companies, but eventually April had wanted to transition more into veterans affairs and radio, which made less money. And when they decided to close her previous businesses, he really made her feel bad about it. He made her feel guilty about those businesses, even though he had been the one pushing her to open them. And he was the one who decided to close them. Because he felt like she wasn't giving them the proper amount of tension that he thought she should be. I don't even think that they were necessarily failing. All of this felt like there was this brinksmanship. There was control issues. Yeah. He at first wanted her to close her original salon, 
and be a stay-at-home wife, essentially. And then when she did that, he would yell at her being like, what did you do all day? And she would like try to tell him like she did this, she was gardening, she went here, she prepared that. And he's like, oh, must be nice. So it was like everything she did, she could never find a way to really truly make him happy. So sad. That's so exhausting. It's exhausting to try to figure out what you want, number one, but then not have a partner who is supporting you in your journey to figure out what will make you happy, but is actively working against you. And it seems like that emotional abuse did eventually progress into physical abuse. So guys, just a heads up for trigger warnings this episode, we will be talking about domestic abuse and later on in the episode, suicide will come up. Apparently, there was a situation, I think her daughter talks about it on the Killer Motives show, that she told everyone that she fell down the stairs when in reality, Jim had pushed her down the stairs. What? Yep. There was a neighbor who later came forward to say that they were out walking their dog one night and there was some yelling. And through a window, they saw that Jim was putting his hands around April's throat. But it had basically stopped almost as fast as it started. And they didn't know what to do because at that point, it seemed like the crisis was over and they never reported it. And they would feel horrible about that forever. Yeah. There was occasions where Jim would threaten April with a gun. There was a bullet hole in one of their walls where he had fired a gun at her, near her, or in front of her. He had a whole arsenal. He had a gun room. I mean, it looked like hundreds of guns. Real safe for someone clearly unhinged. Yeah. So a lot of this horrible stuff was going on. In the middle of all of this, too, there was rumors of infidelity on both sides. There was getting to be a situation where April was fighting back. She's tough. She's a survivor. So there was an occasion where he threatened her with a gun and she ended up breaking his ribs or breaking a rib of his. So the confrontations were escalating and it was getting to the point where it wasn't just enough that he was threatening her now. He was threatening Kim's family Kim was married. Her husband's name is Randy, and she had two small children. So by Christmas 2011, Kim was like, he's not coming to my house. He is banned from family events because every time he comes to my house, he threatens, he escalates, he causes drama. And mom, really, you should not be with this person anymore. This is not working out. So sometime between that Christmas 2011 and her last day on radio in May of 2012, April discovered a lie that was much worse than cheating in her eyes. And I'm not really sure exactly how she discovered this, but somehow April had discovered that Jim was not a Vietnam War hero. I mean, that's like a really gnarly thing to lie about. A really gnarly thing to lie about. That's wild. Well, it's also crazy because we've talked about people who have lied about being in active war zones before or being part of like enemy fire, seeing enemy fire or something like that. But they really, we find out they just had a desk job and that's like embarrassing enough. Yes. But he had never even served in the military. So it was a mail order purple heart. It was indeed. I don't know where you get one of those on eBay. That's terrible. When Jim applied for medical school in 1972, he was asked for his selective service classification 
And he wrote 4F. So this military classification indicated men who were incapable of serving due to a medical or psychological issue. Okay. He explained in his application to medical school that for him it was psychological, that he had struggled with the fear that he was psychotic. This is a red flag. Uh, Yeah. And that he had finally gone to see a psychiatrist. He wrote, I decided to go to a psychiatrist. That decision was one of the hardest I've ever made and also a turning point in my life. I went almost a year trying to put back the pieces of a shattered life. I learned I was not psychotic, but had an emotional maladjustment due to my environment at home. I learned how to face this problem and any others that may arise. I can state with certainty I have more compassion and understanding for other people than do most people because I know what it's like to have problems. Uh, But you're lying to everyone. So you don't have compassion for people. Yeah. I mean, we don't even know for sure if he got this help. We just know that he wrote about it. Is April reading this or she just found out that he didn't serve at all? She found out he didn't serve, but I do not know exactly how she found out. Okay, okay, okay. And then I think that Annie McCormick is a journalist, and I think that she traced all this stuff up probably later and during while all this was going on in the early 2000s. Oh, my God. I'm so curious how she found out, though. Like, I have no idea. But she discovered it. She did tell Kim only it was probably early to, like, spring-ish of 2012 that she had found out this horrible secret. And it's, in general, really, really, really fucked up to try to pass along what real men and women who serve in the military have gone through and try to, like, claim their valor and trauma for yourself. But it was especially horrible and hurtful to April because she had believed him and she had made veterans' issues her main philanthropy and her driving force in life other than her daughter. Yeah. She was very upset about this on many levels because it was a slap in her face. But also she knew that if people found out that he had lied about this and she was married to him and she had made it this big public platform that it was going to look like she knew he lied or she was part of this fraud, even though she wasn't. Wow. It was aggressively terrible, this lie, to April. So she wanted a divorce. That was the final straw because she was like, if I want to keep doing this, which she did, I can't be associated with this man. And also having met so many veterans, having worked directly with veterans, she knew what their real experiences were. So... She just was disgusted with the whole thing. That was the final straw. However, April's best friend witnessed a fight at the end of 2011 where Jim refused to divorce April. So she was telling people around that Christmas, the same Christmas that Kim said, you can't come to my family's home, that she had found out something about him. Now she told Kim, and I think she told maybe two of her other best friends exactly what it was. But for a lot of people, they did not know what was going on that was so devastating to the relationship or even that anything was wrong in the relationship because in public she very much was keeping up the facade. But this best friend said that at the end of that year, 
he was refusing. He was saying, I'm not giving you anything. I'm not letting you divorce me. And she didn't have any access to their money. She didn't know what was going on financially. He wouldn't give her any access. By February of 2012, she was like, well, screw this. I just have to get some forward movement on this. So she hired a divorce attorney and a forensic accountant. She's like, he won't give her access. Well, it's my marriage. I'm going to find out what's going on somehow. By April of that year, April confided in a close friend that through this process, it would seem, or through something else, she had learned something about Jim's finances that she believed she could hold over his head, and this information would ensure that the divorce went through. What is it? Is it juicy? It's juicy, but she didn't tell anyone exactly what it was. Oh. So she didn't disclose it what this secret was. But someone else has to know. The forensic accountant has to know. Well, that's why I don't know if he or she found it out or if April somehow also found this out on her own because it doesn't come up until much, much later. Over the May 5th, 2012 weekend, April visited Kim's house and told her that though divorce was the only conclusion, there was just no other way she could stay with this man, she was pretty upset about it. She had co-founded those businesses that had eventually closed. She was focusing on philanthropy and her radio career, but it really wasn't making a lot of money. There was not enough money to support herself having, you know, a couple times a week radio gig and raising money and volunteering for veterans issues and her other charities. That's not going to pay the bills, unfortunately. So she said to Kim, I'm 47 years old. I know I have so many blessings in my life. I have you. I have the kids. but..." I'm worried about supporting myself, and I really don't want to be dating again at 50. And I'm sad because I really thought when I got married that Jim was going to be the person that I ended my life with, that we were going to be like the little old grandparents together on the porch. So even though she knows that he's done all these horrible things, there was still a lot of sadness in ending this marriage. Of course. Yeah. But she told Kim that she was determined to go through with the divorce and that she would do what she'd always done. She'd always been a survivor. She'd always rebuilt her life and she was going to do it once more. On May 9th, the following Wednesday, April made her final radio broadcast because the next day on May 10th, 2012, Kim Pack got a phone call that she would never forget. It was the moment her world stopped. Jim was on the other end of the phone, and he told her that her mother was dead. So what happened? According to Jim, the previous night, the couple had cooked steaks on the grill, had some wine, and had spent some time in the hot tub before having sex. Wow, that is an action-packed night. <laughs> it's an action-packed night for a couple that's not really getting along. <gasps> He said that he then went to the guest room because he snored. So she would normally sleep in the master and he would sleep in the guest room where they had a TV because he snored. So he went to that room and he watched a Phillies game. And when it was close to over, he went back into the master bedroom to give her a kiss. She was up doing some work, he said. And then he went to bed. He woke up the next morning. He was a very early riser. So he got up before 5 a.m. I was going to say, what are we talking? So yeah, like that's 4 like 4.45-ish. He's literally a rooster. Yes. And he said he got up, 
he showered, he got ready for his day, and then he popped into the master bedroom around 5, 510 in the morning because his clothes were in the master bedroom closet. So he had to grab them. He said at that point, he saw his wife. April was asleep in the bed. He said he could tell she was still alive because she stirred, essentially. So there was like some movement. But he didn't wake her up or kiss her or anything. He left for the day and he went on doing his normal business. Now, he was known as a very early riser. He would usually get to his office around six or so. Jesus. So this was not unusual for him. He went to a Wawa convenience store and I guess they didn't have his paper. So then he went to the hospital for rounds. Then he went to another Wawa so he could get the paper. And then he was in his office by 6.15 making coffee for the employees who worked at his office. Okay. So he said he went about his day. But usually he and April were texting throughout the day, just like married couples do. And when he could not get April on the phone or a response via text by 9.30, he asked their handyman, a guy named Billy Gonzalez, if April was awake and up and if he could talk to her. So Billy said, it looks like her bedroom door is closed. I don't hear anything. Her car is here. I'm just guessing she's still sleeping, which was unusual because April though she didn't get up at 4.30 in the morning, still was an early riser at 6 in the morning. Got it. Okay. She usually didn't sleep in ever, even on the weekends past 7. So this seems very strange. So he went about his day. He had some appointments. And then around, I think, like 11, 11.30, he called again. And he talked to Billy. And he was like, this is very strange. Can you just go check on her? Make sure she's okay, she's not sick, or, or something's going on. Is Billy just hanging at their house? Like, I don't understand why. So they had a lot of exotic birds. Okay. There's this gun room here and an exotic bird room. So apparently we're living in Scarface in this place. <laughs> so I think that he was taking care of the grounds and he was feeding and changing all the cages for the exotic birds. And he had gotten there, I think, just right before 9.30 when he had initially asked. So Billy's like, I can only imagine this poor guy is like, I really don't want to go into my boss's bedroom. Yes. Yeah. It feels like such a violation. It's very uncomfortable. But he did because he was on the phone with Jim, who was insisting at that point. And when he walked in, he said he found April on the ground next to the bed she was still wearing her black nightshirt, and he believed that she had a cut on her arm. It looked like she was bleeding from her arm in a way that he assumed was a cut, and he thought that she was just unconscious. So he called 911 at the same time, because they got off the phone, that Jim was calling the police, trying to get help out to the house. So they're both calling at that point. And Billy still just thought that an accident had happened. The medics arrived and they declared that April was indeed dead at 11.45 in the morning. They also noted, though, that it was very strange that Jim did not touch his wife. He had beat the police there because he had jumped in his car as soon as he heard that she wasn't responsive. But he later told the police that he could tell just by looking at her that she had passed away because he was a doctor. And so he didn't do anything to touch her or revive her, which struck them as very cold and very odd given that he was a medical professional. Yeah. 
because when the medics arrived, they still started doing all their life-saving work until it became clear that she was passed away. Yeah, it's sus. Yeah, he then called Kim and said, mom is dead. And she said, Kim would later say that she doesn't even know. When you hear news like that, you don't have a practiced reaction. There's nothing that prepares you for that moment. And the first thing she said was, what did you do to her? Wow. That was her instinctual response that just flew out of her mouth. And then she said that she just drove there basically on autopilot. She didn't even know. He just said, mom is dead. She didn't even know that she was in her own home. She was just having something inside of her guide her because she doesn't even really remember how she drove there. Yeah. Andy, maybe not so much for you in LA, but over here on the East Coast, there is definitely a big seasonal change in the air. Oh, we started to feel it over here, but it's about to get hot again this weekend. So (laughs) hopefully it'll cool off soon. And as you know, that as weather gets colder, our self-care routines tend to change a little bit. And even, dare I say, take a back seat. This year, though, I'm all about feeling comfortable and confident in my own skin all year long. Absolutely. And when bundling up in cozy sweatpants and long fuzzy socks, there's nothing like the smooth feeling of freshly shaved legs. Plus, as the weather gets colder, there's no pressure around being beach ready or anything like that, which means we get to shave for ourselves and just ourselves, which is absolutely the best. Yes, I agree. If you're looking to up your shaving game, you must check out Athena Club's award-winning razor kit. It is truly the best on the market, and here's why. First, price. The Athena Club Razor Kit is an absolute steal at just $10. But don't let the price fool you. This razor packs a serious punch. It comes with a beautifully made handle and two extra five-blade cartridges that deliver an incredibly smooth shave every single time. And here's another game changer. The Razor Kit also includes a magnetic hook. This means no more clutter in your shower, no more goopy blades, no more razor crashing down to your shower floor in the middle of the night. It's the little things, right? (laughs) Definitely not that last one, which is terrifying. (laughs) And of course, don't forget the quality of the shave. Athena's Club razor glides effortlessly thanks to those five precision-engineered blades. The blades are perfectly spaced out to let hair pass through with each stroke, and you'll experience less irritation and less razor burn, which is always a win in my book. Honestly, Jesse, my old razor just can't hold a candle. It used to get all goopy after a few uses and left my legs feeling super dry. Athena Club razors have a water-activated serum that is just enough to soothe while shaving but never gets gunky on the blade. And they leave me feeling moisturized and super smooth. If you still think all razors are created equal and haven't made the switch, you need to try Athena Club's razor kit. It's affordable and will keep you feeling confident in your own skin all season long, and I know this ad is getting long, but I can't believe we haven't talked about the gentle body scrub yet, Andy. Oh my God, it's heavenly. It's incredible. And even though we're now talking about how we don't have to be beach ready, I'm actually going on a four-day beach vacation for my 10th anniversary and getting to exfoliate first with a gentle scrub, shave, and then get myself tanner on made a huge difference. Yeah, I can imagine. Ready to upgrade your shaving experience? Switch to the best razor on the market and show your skin you care with Athena Club. Head over to athenaclub.com and grab your razor kit today, or you can find Athena Club razors at your local Target. It's that easy. 
Plus, with your purchase of a razor kit and blade subscription on their site, you can try their Gentle Body Scrub for free with code LOVEMURDER at checkout. That's for a limited time only. Yeah, definitely get that Gentle Body Scrub. Just pick a plan for your razor kit, begin checkout, add the code LOVEMURDER before placing your order to automatically add a body scrub to your shipment. Trust me, you won't look back. Happy shaving! Andy, there are so many people out there working incredibly hard, but still finding themselves with money challenges simply because of the way paychecks are distributed. It is so frustrating. Life doesn't happen bi-weekly, so why should payday? The money you earn can be in your hands today with Earnin. Earnin is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work, up to $100 per day or up to $750 per pay period. Just download the Earnin app and verify your paycheck. Then access up to $100 a day as you work and leave an optional tip. Any money you access plus tips are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. I love how much choice and agency Earnin gives the people who use it, especially with the holidays coming up and all of the wonderful but sometimes challenging additional expenses they bring. Earnin is so important. Seriously, life is absolutely difficult enough without having to worry about the timing of when your paycheck is going to land. And the holidays should be a time of excitement, not money anxiety. Yeah, especially Santa Mommy and Daddy have to bring some presents. Yes. Make Earnin' a part of your financial routine and join Earnin's over three and a half million customers who say things like, when I think about Earnin', I think about financial stability and security. It gives me a lot of peace of mind. Download Earnin today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earnin app, type in Love Murder under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. Love Murder under podcast. Subject to your available earnings daily max and pay period max. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank & Trust, member FDIC. Meanwhile, the medical examiner arrived on the scene and then she would later also do a full autopsy and she found out that April had died from being shot. Hmm. So that blood on her arm that the handyman thought was a cut was in fact a gunshot wound. It appeared that she had been shot in the arm first and then she had tried to get out of bed because it looked like the gunshot had woken her up. And so she stood to advance towards the person that was coming towards her with the gun or standing over her with the gun. And then the person then shot her in the chest. That shot pierced her lung and it caused significant internal bleeding. The autopsy report would later say that she had something like two liters of blood inside of her chest cavity. They also found a loaded shotgun underneath her bed, but that was not the murder weapon. And in fact, Jim said, and people knew this about April, she actually kept a loaded shotgun under her bed for protection. So it seems likely that she was getting up to get that shotgun and she did not even have the time. That's how quick this happened. Yeah. So there was no other gun found in the immediate vicinity. So they could immediately rule out suicide. This was not something that she did to herself. Absolutely not. And it looks like whoever got into the house had not taken anything. They had not left any fingerprints, it appeared. So they were likely wearing gloves. 
they did not leave the murder weapon, nor did they leave any shell casings. So this appeared to be as professional as a hit as can be and a targeted hit at that. So now, of course, they have to look at Jim, number one. He's the number one suspect in this. But he was very easily alibied. When he left that morning, they had caught him on camera leaving the house. They got him on the security footage at the two Wawa's. He was at the hospital. And then he was in his office with many witnesses. Now, the medical examiner did have a difficult time trying to ascertain exactly when she had been shot. So there was an edge of possibility that he could have possibly shot her before he left for work, possibly. But it seemed more likely that it had happened after he left, but before Billy Gonzalez arrived around, I believe, nine o'clock. Yeah, from like what we know about him, it doesn't seem like, I feel like he wouldn't be the one pulling the trigger. Yeah, it doesn't seem like he'd get his hands dirty. This seems like a guy who would somehow compel somebody else to do something for him. That's what they're going on. They also um, very thoroughly vetted Billy, the handyman, and he had nothing to do with it. I always, whenever people cause murders, but they like set it up so somebody else has to find them, it's like you just traumatize that person for your own evil gain. Yeah, for the rest of their life. For the rest of their lives. It's horrible. They're never going to be the same. They're going to have nightmares. They're going to have trauma. It's so sad. It's really sad. So, of course, they went through his arsenal. They did not find any weapons that were recently shot or matched the murder weapon. The only thing that was strange was that he kept saying that she had been shot with a twenty-two, and they didn't know how he would have known that. How would he have known that that's what she was shot with? So that, of course, stood out to the investigators. But they, at this point, at the beginning of the investigation, there's nothing that can conclusively link him in any forensic way to the murder. Okay. They, of course, interviewed him, and they asked who may have had some reason to murder April. And he only said that he thought it could be possibly a veteran that she had been working with who had maybe gotten attached to her or she had pissed off somehow. And that apparently she did do some work with some veterans that were bikers. So he thought maybe it could be part of a motorcycle club. Now, there was like a totally innocent motorcycle club in the area that rode for the American Legion. So he's like, there's those guys, but there's also, who knows, there was a, another group of a more dangerous motorcycle gang, an outlaw gang in the area too, named the Pagans. So he's like, the only thing I can think of is it might have something to do with her work with veterans and maybe these motorcycle clubs, because the two of them were involved with that as well, because you remember they were big on biking. Yeah. So that's the only thing he says. That's the only lead he can give them. And pretty much after that, he lawyers up and he refuses to talk. He won't give DNA. He is not cooperating with this investigation at all. Okay. So the police at that point are holding Jim aside and they are looking at other options. They're going to pull on all the strings and see if they can find any other reasons or people or enemies for April. But when it came to April's daughter, Kim, there was really only one person she suspected. And that, of course, was her stepfather. Yeah. She said when she arrived at the house and she saw police, they wouldn't give her any answers about what was going on with her mother. 
And she said, well, I know that you must think it's suspicious because there's a million police officers around here. And the police officer at that point did say, yes, we are looking at this like a suspicious death. And she said, well, that's the guy you want right over there. That's the man responsible for my mother's murder. Wow. Clear as day. Clear to Kim that it was him and only him. Or maybe him and some other people, but definitely he was the architect of her mother's demise. And now nothing Jim did in the following months would disabuse her of that theory because he acted like a complete asshole. (laughs) He refused to cooperate with the police. He did not attend April's vigil one month after she was murdered. He didn't attend her one-year anniversary vigil. He refused to cooperate with any of the attempts that Kim made trying to get the media involved, trying to get answers. He refused to look for anything. It got so frustrating for Kim that she did finally agree to meet him. This was probably five or six weeks, I think, after her mother had been murdered. And she only agreed to meet with him to discuss the fact that she needed him to try to use connections to get answers, that she needed him to tell her literally everything, anything that would help her bring a suspect to the police if it wasn't him, anything. And he just said, oh, kid, I wish I could, but I have hired the best defense attorney in all of South Jersey and the Philly area. And they're telling me that I should not do anything, that I'm not going to do anything because anything that I do could make it look bad for me. And I didn't do it, but I'm not going to get into it. And in fact, I think that you should just get used to the fact that this is probably going to get unsolved. It's going to be unsolved. It's not going to get solved. So just be comfortable with that. (laughs) Which is just the most egregious thing that you can tell any homicide survivor. Literally. Just get used to the fact that your loved one's murder is going to go unsolved. Unreal. She was aghast and even more aghast when he followed that up in the same, in the same meeting by saying that he had gotten in contact with an ex-girlfriend and he was thinking about starting to date again one month after her mother had passed away and he just wanted her blessing. He had already, of course, in fact, been going out with this woman. I don't know if she was the one he was cheating on or if she just got in touch with him after she found out about the events that transpired. I do not know. So I'm not going to demean her character with not knowing the facts. But let's just say if they did get together, they got together pretty fast. Yes. And she just could not believe his gal. She's like, you do whatever you want. Just like help solve my mom's murder, please. Which, of course, he did not. And their relationship only grew more contentious. Oh, I'm sure. Because he unveiled her mother's headstone. April had actually converted to Judaism for her second husband. And Jim was Jewish, so they kind of celebrated some of her old Christmas traditions from when she was growing up and when Kim was growing up, but she also very much believed in her new Jewish faith as well. And from what I understand, in the Jewish faith, they do an unveiling of the headstone, usually around the anniversary of the death. Okay. I think we've talked about this in a previous case. And... Jim was paying for the headstone, so it was his responsibility to get it, and he unveiled it, and it just said, beloved wife. Not mother, not daughter, not grandmother, not friend, just beloved wife. Like, he's basically claiming her in death. And at that point, 
Kim was already sure that he was responsible or involved in her murder. So she was disgusted. And not to mention, by the time they unveiled this, he was already engaged to another woman. He got engaged to the woman he began seeing within six and a half months of her death. All of this is terrible. And obviously, Kim was upset and tensions between the two were ratcheting it up. She said that it got so bad at one point they were at a traffic light together. She just had happened to pull her car up next to him. And when she turned and realized it was him, he looked at her and gave her the finger and then started laughing and drove away. Oh, my God. Just really juvenile and aggressive behavior. But the worst thing that he did was that he did not give Kim items that had been in April's family. Some of them were heirloom items even from her biological father's family that April had been keeping for her. He actually sent them to an auction. He sent them to an auction house and auctioned off all of April's worldly possessions and did not tell Kim. But luckily, her two best friends, April's two best friends, found out about it. And Kim talks about this later. She calls the women her angels. They went to the auction and tried to buy up absolutely everything that they possibly could to be able to return it to Kim. So disgusting. It's disgusting. But it really was like getting a gift from her mother from beyond the grave because one of those things was this Limoges box. It's, it's kind of like a collectible, fancy porcelain, ivory-type decorative box. Okay. And when they gave it to her, she found a note inside of it with her mom's handwriting because her mom intended to pass this down to her someday. And the note read, To Kimberly from mom. Whenever you look at this, know that you're always loved. You're so special. Best wishes for the rest of your life. So sweet. Even when she talks about this later on, she gets choked up. Yeah, I'm sure. Talking about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this guy was just a huge douchebag. So all of this is going down. They're not getting anywhere, or at least they're not communicating with her what's going on with the investigation. And to make matters significantly worse from Kim's side, is that the county attorney prosecutor who is in charge of deciding whether any charges were going to be brought on people or really what the scope of this investigation was going to be was a patient of Jim's. He was a patient and it seems like they were good old boyfriends. Good old boyfriends. Good old, <laughs> good old boys club. Friends. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I see you. Exactly. So she's feeling a little hopeless about the whole situation. And then she gets some paperwork in the mail. This occurred probably, I think it was 11 months after her mom had passed away. She gets a letter from the life insurance company in the mail. And it turns out that Jim was suing Transamerica Life Insurance for not paying out the $600,000 he felt he was entitled to as April's primary beneficiary. So even in the last 10 years, there's been inflation. So that's more like 800 grand in today's money. Wow. And why weren't they paying him? They weren't paying him because they said, we still don't know whether you were involved or not. We have not had a letter from the police saying that you were definitively excluded as a suspect. Wow. Now, they weren't naming him as a suspect. But they also were not telling the life insurance company that they could confidently say he was not 
involved in April's death. No, they're keeping him in limbo, which is the worst. They actually didn't even release a police report, which is customary in these situations, so that the life insurance company's investigators could look into this themselves. So it seems like everyone's in the dark here, and Jim is getting impatient, and he wants that blood money. But because Kim was a tertiary beneficiary, the life insurance company sent her the paperwork, and they said, basically, the primary is suing us. You have to sign some papers that essentially say you support him and that he deserves to get the money, and if we settle this lawsuit, he gets everything. Or you sign this other paper that says, oh, hell no, I'm going to get my own counsel and I'm going to fight him for this because he does have something to do with my mother's death. It's nice they make it so clear. (laughs) Yeah. And she said that this was kind of a message. It was a gift because this gave her the impetus to act. She had been told not to make any public accusations, to let the authorities do their jobs, And now she finally had a sign that she had to fight. And if she files any papers, it's going to become part of public record. So it's going to be out there. She can finally tell the world how she really feels. Yep. So I guess first she went to like a big city firm in Philly and they just weren't getting anywhere. It was so busy. They just weren't getting back to her about it. And so she went to these local guys. Her husband had been injured on the job and he had used these brothers, the Darcy brothers locally and they had done like an absolutely incredible job for him so she's like screw it i'm going to the darcy brothers and these guys got into it i mean they were like absolutely not we are going to counter sue and we're going to say based on the slayer law he can't take any of this money that you're entitled to all of it and we're going to also file a wrongful death suit because we so firmly believe that he had something to do with april's death so They were these avenging legal angels over here. And they also had to subpoena the county prosecutor's office for all of the investigation files, everything that had come up so far. Now, some of the things they didn't get, they did not get everything they wanted. Okay. Now, whether this was the prosecutor covering his ass, the county prosecutor, or if it was sincerely because there were some ongoing investigations happening around Jim Kaufman. We don't know. But there were some witnesses that they were not privy to their names. So there was definitely some areas that the Darcy brothers felt like they weren't getting the whole truth. But they did end up getting Jim's phone records. Wow. Okay. So they looked at the phone records and they saw that... There was one number that Jim had called quite a bit. There was probably a hundred or more phone calls with this guy for a year, a little more than a year, I think. And then, boom, the day of the murder, there's an early morning phone call. And then this number and Jim never speak again, ever. So sus. So sus. And even more sus was that this number was related to a burner phone. Oh, my God. So was this just the legal team coming through this or was there a forensic like a- analysis? This is the civilian legal team. Amazing. Yeah, they're pretty sure that the cops hadn't gone through this. I don't know for sure, but they were like, they didn't give us this information. They had to go back and give them this yeah, information. That's so embarrassing. So even when you get a burner, you're supposed to register the burner. You can lie about it. You can say it's just a, a name, but you have to give a name and address. Wrinkle Bobby. <laughs> 
That would be your fake name? That's what Dan's fake name for everything is, yeah. Wrinkle Bobby. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever oh he has to goodness. just pick a name, it would be Wrinkle Bobby. Oh, that's hilarious. So there was an address associated with this phone number, but it was a fake address. It was an Atlantic City address that didn't exist. The fake name associated with this burner phone was Harry Johnson. Isn't that your cousin's name? Yes. <laughs> In the book, Annie McCormick is like, and the person chose a juvenile and pornographic name of Harry Johnson. And I am dying because Nathaniel's real life cousin is named Harry Johnson. And wrote a senior thesis on it. Yes, because um, so his mom wanted really nice, upstanding names. And his uncle wanted like men's men names and so he said how about we name our sons harrison and mcmillan johnson and she was like that's great it's beautiful and then just called them until it stuck harry and mac so harry and mac johnson oh my god harry did write his college essay about being named harry johnson what that means in the world i mean apparently it means juvenile and pornographic and pornographic According to Miss McCormick. <laughs> mm -hmm. Wow. Well, later on when we find out who named it that way, it was a bit of a joke. It was supposed to be a joke. So Harry Johnson. So they got this number that belongs to, in quotations, Harry Johnson. Yes. We know this person's name is not. 123 Main fact. Street, Atlantic City. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we know, in fact, that this person is not actually Nathaniel's cousin. <laughs> So they, they've got this number. They're like, okay, we're going to give this back to the investigators and say, look into this burner phone. Doesn't it look pretty suspicious that all of the phone calls stopped the day of the murder? So the other good thing about bringing the civil case, and we see this a lot, is that they then get the person to come in and do a deposition and start talking. And this was the first time that he was deposed in this entire investigation. It was the first time really anyone had what he said completely on the record. Okay. And already his story is changing. And it, it was some small details about like what they did the night before, what he was doing that morning. Some of that information had changed. And then he admits to lying about his military career on the deposition. So they got him on the record saying that he had made it all up. Okay. And then when they asked him who it could possibly be if it wasn't him, he suggested that it was somebody in this Pagan's motorcycle gang that he believed had something to do with it. And in the deposition, he went a little further than he had before, and he suggested that April had potentially had an inappropriate relationship with a Pagan. Now, this definitely piques the Darcy's interest because they had, in fact, cross-referenced Harry Johnson's number with April's contacts in her phone. And they found that she did actually have the burner phone number saved. It was saved in her contacts as Motor P. So could that stand for Motorcycle Pagan, Motor P? And if April had had the inappropriate relationship with Motor P, a.k.a. Harry Johnson, why hadn't she ever called the number or received a call from it? There was no record of her ever contacting this contact. They were simply saved in her 
address book. Weird. Very weird. And if Dr. Kaufman is suggesting that April may have had a inappropriate relationship with somebody, maybe he's putting the number in trying to build an association because we do know that late night before April was killed, some people did receive some strange emails from her. They were forwards of other emails that she'd already sent. And we think that maybe that was somebody, aka her husband, trying to make it look like she was messaging people. So it's entirely possible that maybe, we don't know, maybe she was dead earlier. They're trying to figure all this out, but they're saying if April had the inappropriate relationship with the motorcycle gang, why did she never call him, contact this person, call them? And if you're saying that she had an inappropriate relationship, why are there 100 phone calls between you and this person? Yeah, I think you're having the inappropriate relationship, <laughs> sir. Yes. Well, it turns out that the Darcys were not alone in thinking that. It seems like the feds actually were already on way before April's murder. They were already watching Dr. Kaufman and already had a plant in his office, like an employee of his that was a double agent, because the not-so-good doctor had an illegal pill mill going on with the pagans. Shut up. <laughs> yep. So that's why, as much as it seems like the old county prosecutor, because we're going to get a new one soon, might have been in bed with Jim, and it's entirely possible that there was something going on. It is also very possible that there was only so much they could release about the investigation because it was ongoing because this guy had schemes on schemes on schemes. So we're going to talk about the pagans a little now, and then especially the chapter president of the pagans in Cape May at the time of April's murder. So just for some background, obviously, guys, there's totally legal, not up to no good motorcycle clubs out there. And then there are motorcycle gangs. The American Motorcycle Association stated that 99% of the motorcycling public are law-abiding. That's what they said. But however, there are 1% of the motorcycling public who are not. <laughs> So they're not counting how they drive on freeways as legally <laughs> operating, right? <laughs> so the pagans who are classified by the FBI as an outlaw motorcycle gang, they proudly call themselves the one percenters, meaning that yeah, yeah, they're part of that one percent that's up to no good. So these are the guys that like sons of anarchy, you're going to see drug running, gun running, maybe some sex trafficking. These are the, the guys that are going to get into some trouble. It seems like the pagans were mostly involved with drugs. They also happen to be the largest outlaw motorcycle gang in the South Jersey, Philly area. Okay. The only group that was bigger in the tri-state area was the Hells Angels. And this was the type of thing, though, that if a Hells Angel tried to push into their territory, people would die. The pagans would go and fight. And the most excellent documentary that I recommend all of you guys to watch. In fact, I think Dan would like it if you guys want to watch it at some point. It's called Doctor's Orders. I think it's on Discovery Plus. I got it through Prime because I like subscribe to Discovery Plus through Prime. And it is a three-episode documentary series about this case, but also about the pagans. And... The guy who's the star of this is a guy we're going to talk about in a little bit named Andrew Glick. 
Okay. And he talks about just the pagans in general at the beginning of the series, which is, it was a type of organization where if somebody started fighting, you started fighting. You didn't need to know why. You didn't need to know what was going on. If a pagan told you to kill somebody, you just killed them. This was not an organization in which you asked questions. This was a very dangerous, rough organization. Jesse, we are fully in holiday mode over here at Ririku. Yes, literally the moment Halloween is over at like midnight on November 1st. I'm like, get out of my way, Halloween. Let's bring on the cozy holiday gifts. <laughs> I'm in the same exact way. Some of the lovers listening might not know that having a store for cool vintage finds and goods from amazing and lesser known creators was always a dream of mine. And it was a dream that got more real when I found Shopify. Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're a small business entrepreneur like Andy or part of a huge enterprise, Shopify is the only tool you need to start, run, and grow your business without the struggle. Shopify puts you in control of every sales channel. So whether you're selling satin sheets from Shopify's in-person POS system or offering organic olive oil on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform or, of course, cool vintage finds like moi, Shopify has you covered. We'll be launching a new merch store with Shopify with holiday options for you guys very soon as well. I'm excited to bring all of the little tips and tricks that I've learned from using this incredible platform over to the Love Murder store as well. It's just going to make everything so much more seamless. Andy, did you also know that Shopify actually powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States? And it truly is a global force, powering Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, as well as millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across over 170 countries. It's actually mind-blowing to me that it's not more, to be honest, because <laughs> it's that unbelievable. And I feel like all of the stores I sell to also use Shopify. So it's just, it's the e-commerce platform to use if you want to grow your business. Shopify also has award-winning help that is there to support your success for every step of the way. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lovemurder, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lovemurder to take your business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash lovemurder. As you guys know from the stories on our show, the world gives you enough to worry about without having to worry about body odor as well. That's why we're so excited to tell you about Lumi, whole body deodorant. It's clinically proven to control odor everywhere. And they do mean everywhere for a full <laughs> 72 hours. You know it. As an OBGYN, Lumi's founder, Dr. Shannon Klingman, met thousands of women concerned with odor below the belt. Through clinical testing, she found that the real culprit wasn't our wonderful lady bits, but bacteria on the skin. So she created Lumi, a skin-safe aluminum-free deodorant that actually works and works everywhere with over 150,000 five-star reviews to prove it. I just think this is such a great product and I'm fully obsessed with the to-go little wipes that are perfect for when I get off of a red eye or I'm traveling all day. It's just like the perfect freshen up. Yes, and the um, deodorant lotion cream so cool. was something Yeah, I did not know I needed in my life and now I can't live without it. If you want to check Lumi out, their start pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice like mini body wash and deodorant wipes, and free shipping. 
And as a special offer for our listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with code LOVEMURDER at LumiDeodorant.com. That equates to over 40% off your starter pack when you visit LumiDeodorant.com and use code LOVEMURDER. And so Andrew does not look like what you'd imagine (laughs) exactly from the leader of a dangerous motorcycle gang. He is like this ginger man, I think in his mid to late 50s. They call him Chef. That's his nickname. And all of these guys had different nicknames like Slasher and Mr. Miserable and stuff like that. And his was Chef because he was genuinely a chef. That was his profession. (laughs) And so he is up to no good. He is dealing cocaine. He was addicted to coke at some point. He is messing up left and right in his personal life, which is just a great part of this whole documentary, his personal stuff. They also animate the documentary. So he's like telling this gruesome story or he's telling about how he like cheated on his first wife and how he got caught. And it's all in cartoon. (laughs) But he's the whole time he's working at a retirement community as the head chef. (laughs) And they have a clip of basically an ad or like a TV commercial for the retirement home. And he's like, I'm the head chef here. And and I would have to say that what I love making for the people who live here is crab cakes. And it's like this guy who's like this, like really dangerous drug running motorcycle gang president. And he's like flipping some (laughs) crab cakes for some nice old people. You never know. Those old people could have been in motorcycle gangs. Yeah, you never know. You never know who could be in a motorcycle gang. Anyone. So Andrew Glick was the president of this this chapter. And on May 10th, 2012, April's loved ones were not the only ones freaking out about her death. So was Andrew Glick, who had been very intimately involved with the doctor's pill mill. So he knew everything about that side of it. He was part of it. And he knew that the doctor had been trying to find somebody to kill April. It had come down through a guy that he considered like a brother to him. So there's this other guy, Fred, and Fred Ogello had been the president when he came in. So it was like kind of like a fraternity, like big brother, little brother situation. And he had a lot of respect for Fred. Fred is the one who initially made contact with the doctor and set this whole thing up. And essentially it was the pagans and sometimes their girlfriends or associates going in, claiming to have a real issue, paying their copay if they have insurance or paying for the appointment. And then he would write them a script for 120 or more Oxycontin pills. And this was great on the street because these guys could sell these pills for 20 to $30 because they were real prescribed oxys and not some pressed messy shit made out of like baby laxative. So that was the whole thing that they had going on. And Fred wanted to keep it going. They were making lots and lots of money off of this because apparently it didn't seem like the doctor was getting much more than just the co-pays or the office visits. Yeah. So he's pushed, like he's getting lots more appointments and everything and he can charge maybe Medicare for them. But that's what he's getting out of it. Meanwhile, they're going on the streets and they're selling these things for like, Twenty-four to four thousand dollars a prescription. Insane. Insane. And they had spread out everywhere. At one point, Andrew Glick had it going all the way down to Florida. He had other people coming in, handing it off, bringing the pills all the way down there. 
So this was becoming a huge operation. Fred didn't want it screwed up. And he said, look, like the doctor gives us a great deal. He's a great guy to work with. And starting around December of 2011, right when they were having problems, he said he wanted his wife dead and he wanted the pagans to do it. Now, at this point, Andrew is the president. Fred had been kicked out of being the president because they thought he was stealing money from the chapter. They didn't have enough proof. So they didn't, there was like a way of kicking somebody out forever or killing them. But there was not enough proof to substantiate that. So they just said he could not be president anymore because they, they weren't going to leave him in charge. Demoted. He was demoted. So now Andrew's president. And when Fred came to him with this, he's like, you got to be kidding me. We're not doing that. First of all, we don't kill women. We also don't kill anyone based on a non-pagan's orders. So to him and the other pagans, this guy's a douche. He's a wannabe loser doctor. He rode motorcycles and tried to be like, oh, I, I'm so cool like you guys, blah, blah, blah. And he's not. He's a wannabe. And so we control him. He doesn't control us. And he's not going to tell us to kill somebody. That's stupid. And he's like, look, well, we can make a lot more money about this. We don't want the funds to dry up. This is a great operation we got going on. And he said that he was offered like 10, 15,000. It seems like Fred was trying to keep a lot for himself because later somebody else says that they were offered 100,000. So it's unclear exactly how much money people were going to be making in this hit. Okay. But what we do know is that Andrew thought it was stupid because he's like, well, we can make way more by blackmailing him. What is he going to do? We take his money. We say, you're going to keep the pill mill going and we're not going to drop it to the police anonymously that you've been asking a bunch of motorcyclists to kill your wife. Yeah. He's like, we, we are in the leveraged position here. We're in a good situation. Like we have the leverage. So why would we actually go through with this hit at all? Doesn't make any goddamn sense. So that's what he thought was the last of it about, I guess, three or four months before the murder. He was like, that's it. That's the end of it. He's not murdering her. Business went on as usual. He didn't really hear about it. So when she was killed and his wife at the time saw it in the news, he was like, holy shit, what did that dumb fuck do? Oh, no. <laughs> because now he's freaked out. And he wasn't freaked out about the authorities finding out that the pagans were involved with the murder. He was worried about their mother club. So essentially, all of these big outlaw groups has, it sounds like some outlaw group corporate they call the mother club. Wow. Oh, my God. Yeah. And they have to, all the clubs have can have their own little money-making schemes, little two-bit organizations here or there. But if they get a big job or they're involved in like a lot of drug running or a drug ring, they are supposed to notify the mother club and make sure they're protected, but also give a percentage to the mother club. That's part of the rules. So- He's not scared about the cops. He's scared about the mother club finding out that they have had a illegal pill ring going on for months and months at this time, and they haven't been cut in. And also mother club finding out that they were involved or somebody in the pagans was involved in a hit involving a non-pagan's wife. Because he's like, I could get killed for this. So he has this big old tattoo. He's actually like on the documentary getting it covered up. But he has this huge tattoo that says like 1% and has a diamond because you get a diamond for being president. Okay. And they will, at the very best, burn your tattoo off or cut it off of you 
or you will get killed because he's responsible as the chapter president for maintaining order. So even if he's not the one who did it and he didn't know anything about it, he's supposed to because he's the president. Yeah. So he's flipping out. And he did go to Fred and be like, what the fuck, dude? And he's like, well, don't worry about it. But he doesn't want to talk about it. He's just preparing for the worst, thinking that something's going to happen at this point. Yeah. But then time goes by and nothing happens. So Andrew Glick's like, huh, maybe we got away with it. And he does like find out after the murder that Fred had talked to a bunch of people. There's whispers about people he got involved. It looks like he got some non-pagans involved in it. It looks like a non-pagan murder. So he's like, okay, maybe we're in the clear here. They haven't heard from Mother Club. Maybe it's going to be okay. And he's also still making a shit ton of money moving oxies. So he doesn't want to rock the boat if this isn't going to be traced back to him. So he's like, okay, I was worried, but now I'm really not that worried. Now I think that we're going to be fine and we're going to move forward. So he thinks he's fine. And then I think it was something like a year and a half, probably sometime at late 2013, that Fred came to him and said something like, you know, that problem we talked about with the doctor's wife that you were worried about. And he said, yes. And he goes, well, the... Like the gunman, he did like a movement with his hands, has been neutralized. He's not around to talk anymore. So Andrew's like, uh, okay. <laughs> oh my God. Great. I guess uh, the trash took itself out. One less person is going to talk, one less person to worry about in this situation. So he keeps on going his merry way, dealing his drugs, getting into this guy is such an anti hero, Andrew. He's like, you just like him so much for some reason, even though he's a total dipshit who is totally running drugs. He's cheating on like every wife and girlfriend he's ever had. Yeah, but you're still rooting for him. Yeah. He has this way of talking and I think his mother was Irish. So sometimes when he's chatting, this like slight Irish accent comes in and you're just, you just kind of love him, even though he's a total asshole. <laughs> he's so captivating. He carries this whole three-part documentary. So yeah, so he thinks everything's fine, but he was wrong. He was very wrong. So five years after April's murder, a new Atlantic County county prosecutor was sworn in. And this guy's name was Damon Tyner. He was actually the first African-American county prosecutor that this county had ever had. Cool. And he meant business. He was not playing around with this old boys club, and he was not going to let... Jim Kaufman go. He was not going to let April Kaufman's murder go unsolved for a minute more. As soon as he got into office, he started cracking skulls. Wow. So he got in there and he's like, let's immediately start gunning for Dr. Jim Kaufman. He's like, we've already had the DEA and the FBI involved with his schemes and scams. Turns out that Dr. Kaufman was doing more than just his illegal pill mill. He also had two other scams going on at the same time. He had some sort of kickback scam going with a blood lab. Okay. So he'd send people in for unnecessary labs. Oh my God. And then I think that the lab would give him kickbacks for that. And then there was also a whole scam with compound prescriptions. So he was in with some skeezy pharmaceutical companies that essentially could sell these compound prescriptions for thousands of dollars, but it only cost them $10 to make. 
Well, let's not also forget about his scam about serving. Oh, yes. I mean, this guy's just a liar. Everything is a scam. Everything's how to get ahead in life. He doesn't care about anyone. I mean, I really do think he's psychopathic as far as my way and things that benefit me with no empathy or understanding of anyone else. So, yeah, he's in bed with two different scams all at the same time, which I think that they were originally looking at him for the lab, the blood work scam. Yeah. And then they realized that he was involved with a lot more. And then, oh, his wife is murdered in their home. So they got a lot going on with this guy. He's got the scams on scams on scams. And the new county prosecutor is like, we have enough that we should serve him with a search warrant in his office. And they can ostensibly do this for what's going on with the drug charges and the fraud and everything. And if they do the scope in a way that if they find out something is involved with April's murder, then they can use. But ostensibly, they're going in for all of the other things that they already have an idea about based on their informant and other things. So they're going to go in for that. They're going to get a search warrant. And this is going to put the pressure on him. And I think what, what they were thinking was that they're going to go in and they're going to get evidence of all of this illegal shit that he's been doing. They can throw him in jail for that. And then they can put pressure on him to reveal the truth and roll on whoever actually was the gunman in April's murder. That's the, what they're thinking is going to go down. And so now they have no desire to arrest him at this point. They do not have a warrant to arrest him, but they do have a search warrant. So on June 13th, 2017, the investigators from the prosecutor's office, local police, and the FBI went down to Kaufman's office to deliver this search warrant. Okay. Now, there's a lot of them because there's a lot of people involved in this case, obviously. But nobody was really scared. At this point, he was in his mid to late 60s. He's an endocrinologist. They're not really scared that this guy's going to pull any weird shit. So they're not wearing vests or anything. And they go up to his office. He comes out. And immediately, as soon as this guy, Jim Scopa, who's also on the documentary, pulls out the search warrant and starts telling him that he has a warrant to search the premises, Dr. Jim Kaufman pulls out a nine millimeter out of his waistband. What? So the detective who's not wearing a vest immediately dives back and down and he's like, we're not arresting you. What are you doing? And he's screaming, I'm not going to jail for this. I'm not going to jail. You'll never get me alive. I'm going to the back room and I'm going to kill myself. Oh my God. This is all caught on body cam footage. So it's on the documentary. And I think, as I recall, that it kind of seemed like for a second he was pointing it at everyone. Because I'm wondering if he was trying to suicide by cop. And then it seemed like he pulled back and said, I'm just going to go kill myself. You're never going to take me. I'm not going to jail for this. Now, at this point, they hadn't delivered the warrant to him. He didn't know what the case was about. And so it seems like he's really guilty about April's murder here. Yeah. Because he didn't even stop to figure out what they were delivering. Yes. So they're trying to talk him down. It's this high, intense situation now. They're calling in SWAT. They're calling in negotiators because he's going back in his office with a loaded weapon and nobody knows what he's going to do. Yeah. At the same time, they're trying to tell him, we're not taking you. We're not arresting you. This isn't a warrant for your arrest. We're simply searching the premises. Oh, my God. And so after like an hour of like one guy like running up and like scooting the warrant like under the door to try to get him to read it to see that they're not taking him anywhere. He finally 
surrendered himself after an hour. Whoa. Yeah. And at that point, he was like, okay, you can search. And they're like, well, actually, we got to take you for a psychiatric hold. And he's like, what are you talking about? And like you said you were going to kill yourself. And anytime somebody says publicly they're, they're going to harm themselves, they have to be held for an involuntary psych hold. Yeah. What they didn't tell him was that after that, he was definitely going to jail for <laughs> a weapons charge. <laughs> Literally. he had been threatening police with a gun. Oh, my God. Wow. His wife was really upset. I don't think it's on the documentary, but in the book, there's like jailhouse phone calls between the two of them. And he's like, I can't eat the food here. Ugh, they gave me a peanut butter jelly. It was the worst thing I ever had in my life. And she's like, well, you didn't have to be in jail. You didn't have to go waving a gun around at the police. (laughs) But it's not a big ask. It's not a big ask. It's not very hard to do. So he's now in jail. And... Because he threatened multiple members of the prosecutor's office, the FBI, and the local police with a 9mm gun, they're like, guess what? You also don't get bail. You're staying there. Oh, my God. You are clearly unhinged and a danger to society. So, no, you're not getting out on bail. So that was actually the doctor's last day of freedom that day, that morning. What a way to What a way to go. File that one. All back there. Meanwhile, Andrew Glick is like driving by. He's like a looky-loo and he's like, oh shit, there's a lot of cops out there. He's got like a lot of high anxiety here. I think he like then went and put like all of his drugs in a storage unit or something. He's like, they're just going to come and take me away because he knows that they're going to pour through his patient records, which is exactly what they did because they immediately seized all of his patient list and their medical records so they could find out who he's giving drugs to. And I guess also it said that the FBI can just stop people who are wearing, you know, like in Sons of Anarchy, they wear, I forget what they're called, those vests, essentially, that say they're part of the gang. Well, I guess legally they can just stop and register these guys. I don't know if that's part of the agreement between the FBI and these outlaw motorcycle gangs. So there's somewhere a list of who's in the pagans. Yeah. And he's known, and there's a lot more known pagans that are just going to pop up on the doctor's list. And so he doesn't know that they already knew about this anyway. So he's kind of freaking out. And he legitimately has type 2 diabetes. (laughs) Legitimately. So he has a reason to see an endocrinologist, which is why he was the perfect guy to be running this pill mill, is because he genuinely had to go and get his blood sugar levels under control which is what ostensibly this doctor was supposed to be doing. So he's on the documentary and he says, well, you know, I was doing great. I was doing great with my diabetes. It was was the best it's been in years. So I didn't really want to risk that. And obviously the, the staff at the doctor's office can't transfer his medical records. So he calls the prosecutor's office and asks if he can get his medical file back. Oh my God. So he can take the information to a new endocrinologist because his diabetes was under control and he wanted to make sure it stayed that way. Oh, my God. So now it goes to the investigator who works at the prosecutor's office. And he's like, are you kidding me? This, the president of the Cape May chapter, the Pagans, wants to come in and get his medical chart? He's like, fantastic. Roll out the red carpet. Have him come in. And Andrew says that he got there and they're like, yeah, we just need you to come into this room. And wait, and we'll be right back with your file. And he waited, and he waited, and after five minutes, he was like, oh, fuck this. And he got up, and, he, and the door was locked. He couldn't get out. 
Oh, my God. They did eventually give him his file. And at this first meeting, essentially they're feeling him out. He's feeling them out. I mean, it seems very clear that Andrew wanted to know what they knew about what was going on and vice versa. But the number one rule of the pagans is you don't rat, obviously. Any criminal organization, the number one rule is you don't squeal no matter what. Yeah. Stay mom. Dummy up, babe. So he doesn't really say much this first occasion. But the investigator for the prosecutor's office says he was different than a lot of these guys, these pagans he had met, where he was really respectful and he was very conversational. He seemed smart. He seemed just like I told you, he kind of liked the guy. And he knew from that first meeting that he was going to have an in with Andrew, that there was a possibility, even though he's saying he's going to dummy up and he's not going to talk shit. They also told him at that point or right around that point that the doctor was trying to get out of all of the myriad legal issues he was in and deflect any suspicion specifically from his involvement with April's murder. So he had written a letter saying that they should look at specifically Fred of the Pagans and this other guy, Francis Mulholland, who we will talk about later. And I guess that they gave this to Andrew or the Pagans or Andrew's defense attorney at some point. And I think they specifically wanted him to leak it within the organization and bring it to Fred to see what they would do when they're all riled up, right? Yeah. So at this point now, it's all also, guys, you got to just watch this because I wish I could tell you everything about this guy's personal life because it's so bad. But he's going through a divorce because he was cheating on his wife with her friend who she had brought into the house to stay there with her kid because she was in a domestic violence situation. And then he starts cheating with the friend who was escaping the domestic violence situation in his home. Not good. So his wife's leaving him and she's going to take half of everything. And he's got the cops down his throat because they know he's an in at this point. And so he had tried to stop selling drugs for a little while, but he thought he was in the clear like four months after his first visit to the county prosecutor's office. And he decided to open back up. I think he called it Andrew's Crime World. Because he was dealing meth and coke and pills and all sorts of stuff. And he apparently was out in his shed where he was weighing all his drugs and counting his money. And they came and they arrested him. And he had something like 40 grand in cash in his shed with all of his drugs. So, of course, they seize all that. And now he is looking down the barrel of 40 years in prison for obvious intent to distribute many substances. Yes. So they're like, we're going to need you to do a job for us at that point. Now, Andrew kind of had put things together about who had murdered April. And at this point, I believe that the investigators had actually put all the pieces together. So let's talk about what actually happened before we get into how Andrew helps. So Fred had been fishing around for someone to kill April on Jim Kaufman's behalf for months. And it sounds like he wasn't exactly discreet. There was a handful of different pagans that he had asked and then asked pagans to ask other pagans or non-pagans. So many people knew about this. He just probably assumed that pagans weren't going to say shit, right? So none of the actual pagan guys considered it. Eventually, a mutual friend of Fred and Andrew Glick's, who was not a pagan, was this guy named Joe Mulholland. And he was part of the pill ring, even though he wasn't a pagan. So he would go to the dock and get pills, too. 
Now, he said no, and then the doc offered him 100 grand to do it, and he also said, I just don't kill people. That's not my thing. And so both Fred and the doctor were putting pressure on this guy, Joe, to find somebody to kill April if he would not. Okay. Now, Joe was pretty badly addicted to drugs. So he was using a lot of the oxys, and when he couldn't get oxys, he was using heroin. He also had another buddy who also had substance abuse problems, particularly around these substances. And that was a friend who was called Francis Mulholland. They have the same last name, but they are not related. (laughs) So weird. Yeah. And there's also nicknames for all these guys. So it gets very complicated. I'm trying to make it as simple as possible for everyone in this because this is a wide web of criminality and deceit. (laughs) It sounds like Frank Mulholland, Francis, was down on his luck and he was willing to do the job even though he's not a pagan, he has absolutely no business killing anyone, no experience killing anyone. Yeah. But he's willing to do it, especially if it keeps the pills flowing. Yeah, exactly. So it would come to light later that Joe hooked up Francis Mulholland with Fred, and Fred was the go-between between the hitman and Dr. Kaufman. And Joe knew everything, He was very, very close to Francis. They called themselves cousins because of the last name, even though they weren't technically related. And he ended up being the one who drove Francis to the doctor's house. And he claims that he dropped him off after getting the sign from Fred, who had gotten it from Dr. Kaufman when he left. So Dr. Kaufman leaves. He says, she's in the bedroom. I already gave you the diagram of the house and told you how you get up there. Shoot her and get out. The door's open. And then Fred had called, there's like so many steps involved this, had called Joe and said, get him in the location and tell him what to do. Then Francis had gone into the house and actually had been the one who murdered her. Okay. And then he came out, he was allegedly high when the murder occurred and he got lost or something. So he like wandered around on foot for a little while and there is surveillance footage of him like crossing this parking lot and then eventually located the other Mulholland who picked him up and drove him home after the murder and said it was done. And then that guy reported it to Fred, who ostensibly reported it to Jim Kaufman. And then Harry Johnson stopped calling Dr. Kaufman and vice versa. So that is what actually went down. It's really hard to figure out exactly what everybody knew about this because, of course, none of these people want to cop to the fact that they knew about it and they didn't provide the cops with the information until they were literally had their backs against a wall. I guess not literally, but you get the picture. Metaphorically had their backs against the wall. Maybe literally. I don't know how they do interrogations. <laughs> so it, it does look like she was murdered at 530 based on the testimony of these guys. We still don't know exactly how much he was paid. This guy, Francis, did tell his nephew that he had received some money for killing a woman and that he had gotten $50,000. But we don't know that for sure. But the doctor had a problem. So this goes through many channels, obviously. And And the doctor doesn't think that anyone's going to be able to link him to this guy, Francis Mulholland. Francis Mulholland knows exactly who the doctor is because he's been getting the pills that have his name on them, on the prescription bottle. And at some point a few months after the murder, 
he must have spent all the money or was just strung out or something, he decides that it's well within his rights to just march into Dr. Kaufman's office and demand more pills and money. He got the job done. He did it. And you're going to give me money or I'm going to tell everybody what you made me do. So, of course, Dr. Kaufman was freaking out. He actually even said something to Andrew, which is how Andrew started putting all this together, which was that some asshole, some nut job had just barged into his office. This guy, Francis Mulholland, do you know him? And he said, no, I know Irish Mulholland. That's Joe Mulholland. That's his nickname. He's like, well, I don't know Francis. And he's like, well, I don't want him around here anymore. And apparently he told Fred to get rid of him. Like, get rid of him. I don't want him coming around here anymore. Well, we recall that Andrew said that the problem had been neutralized. He wasn't around anymore to talk. Well, that's because Francis Mulholland died of an apparent overdose on the morning of October 8th, 2013. Okay. At the time that it's investigated, nobody knows of any connection to the murder, of course. And he had a long history of having an issue with drugs. So this doesn't seem completely out of the realm of what could happen. Later, when he's connected, his family is like, oh my gosh, this makes so much more sense because he had actually just gotten out of rehab and his family and his AA sponsor said that he was doing great. He was working the steps. He was totally clean. So this relapse came out of nowhere. And again, we hear that a lot, actually, with relapses. This is not unusual. So nothing suspicious at all, still probably, except for the fact that he was found with a bottle of pills with Dr. Jim Kaufman's name on it. Ooh. It still could mean nothing, though. So we know that they wanted him out of the picture, and then he's out of the picture with the doctor's drugs in his hands. So it's sketchy. We don't know for sure what happened, but there's just obviously a lot of speculation for very good reason. And I guess his family did not know that they could file or request for the case to be reopened. And so it looks like there was a request to open the case in December of 2018. But as far as I know, I don't know what kind of progress is made because no arrests have really been made. So they might have looked at it and said it probably was still an accidental overdose or it might be something else, but we don't know at this point. Okay. The hitman is out of the picture. They think that they are smooth sailing. Now, they have a lot of witnesses because they have interviewed or they've been working with an informant to talk to people that are involved in this pill mill. There's a lot of people that know about the murder and they know Fred was asking everyone to commit murder. And they're all willing to point the finger at Fred to get out of trouble, of course. But this arrangement of witnesses... Not exactly your upstanding citizens. Yes, yeah. They are all people who are pagans or they're drug dealers, they're drug users. There's one guy who's a white supremacist and has like Nazi tattoos, so no one's going to like that guy. Yeah. It's not a great group if you're going to be relying on testimony. So the feds and the prosecutor's office, they need hard evidence that the defense can't dispute, which means they need Andrew Glick to go undercover and wear a wire and get Fred to talk. Oh, God. Which, as you can imagine, would mean absolutely certain death if he is caught. Yes. And even if he's not caught, if it somehow comes out later, then it means certain death from his other motorcycle gang brethren. Okay. This is a hard sell. But between that and what would essentially amount to life in prison because he's not super duper healthy and it'd be 40 years, he decides to betray his pagan brother and to wear a wire. 
Okay. So that's the big drama of the documentary is him like going undercover and they have all these wire conversations. That's not the big drama of our case here for love murder because we're about the love and the murder and not uh, all of the espionage and conspiracy and motorcycle gangs. (laughs) So if you're interested in that, go watch the documentary. (laughs) So for months, he ends up hitting Fred up and the two of them together, really Fred, decide... He never explicitly says, like, yes, I ordered the hit on April, but they're stressed out. They're covering their tracks, obviously, and they start setting up a hit on the doctor behind bars because he's the only one left who can talk. They're like, the hitman's gone. He's not talking from the grave. And now we have to get rid of the doctor. He's the only other person that has a direct connection here. So they even trail Fred to Atlantic City, where he has a meeting with two members of the Cosa Notra the Sicilian mafia, because Fred, whose real name is Ferdinand, by the way, is Sicilian. Wow. And I guess that the Cosa Nostra said no thank you to the job. And so he's panicking and he wants the doctor dead. So Andrew said, look, I can check with my Mexican cartel suppliers because they're the ones who give him the coke or the meth or both, who knows, but they give him drugs to sell. So he starts working out with Fred on this wire how the hit's going to go forward. And he gets them on the wire saying, yes, make sure go forward with it. I'll pay them this month. So they got that amount and enough that they think that they can bring the case, even with the subpar witnesses and the wire, that's going to be enough for a jury. And then they arrest, they pull Fred out of bed at like five in the morning and his whole family. And they arrest him in January of 2018. And they also arrest a whole pile of other people from Jersey, Florida, North Carolina, South Carolina that were involved in this pill mill. They get Beverly, who is Fred's ex-wife. They have Glenn Sealer. They have his wife, whose real name is Cheryl Pizza, Joseph Mulholland, obviously, and then two other people. So they're all arrested, and they all would later take tiny little deals to testify against Fred. Got it. Okay. Now, Jim was still in jail, obviously, because he didn't get bail, and he is also now charged with his wife's murder because of all this. So disgraced Dr. Jim Kaufman was arraigned in court on Thursday, January 18th. And this was the first time that Kim had been in the courtroom with him since he had been originally arrested. Okay. Her mom's best friends had gone to his arraignments for the gun charges, but she just really wasn't interested in that. This was the one that was about her mother and she really didn't want to be there, but she knew she had to be there for her mom. And she said that it was kind of crazy how he looked because he clearly had been dyeing his hair. His hair had gone totally snow white. He had lost a lot of weight. He looked frail. He's handcuffed. He was just this totally different man when they bring him in. And of course, he pled not guilty. And she was not looking forward to the media circus around this. And she also knew that he was going to spread lies about her mother, that every single thing was going to come up in this trial, as we've seen all of the muckraking and the blaming of the victim. And it was hurting her heart that she was going to have to go through with this. But obviously, she would do anything to get justice for her mother. But in the end, she actually would not have to live through that trial. Because on January 26, 2018, Dr. Jim Kaufman was found dead in his cell. Unbelievable. He had hung himself with a bedsheet. Now, obviously, there's a lot of conspiracies here. Was he killed by a pagan? Yep. He was in protective custody, and he left a six-page suicide note. So we very definitively believe 
that he killed himself. Andrew Glick is on the documentary Doctor's Orders saying like, I don't know, I think he's like somewhere witness protection. Although why? I don't know. And the, the county prosecutor's investigator is on the show too. And he's like, why would he say that? That's ridiculous. He's like, I don't mean to laugh, but like, no, he's dead. I, I saw him. He's dead. And so he's dead. And this suicide note is a pile of shit. It's to the very end. He paints himself as the victim. He blames April. He said April got him involved with a pill mill, that it was uh, her contacts and the people she knew that started the pagans coming to him. Now, they did investigate whether there was a link, and it turns out that at some point, April had asked him to treat a couple of her friends that didn't have insurance, like under the books. But that was it. There was no connection to the pill mill. So then there's, of course, online speculation that Jim believed that he would be murdered by the pagans in prison anyway. So this was the easy way out. Yeah, for him. And I would say so, yes. Kim was a class act to the very end. She said that she took no joy in Jim's death. And in fact, when she heard that he had killed himself, she cried, genuinely cried, because it was so senseless and he had really been her stepfather for over a decade. Just the whole thing was so senseless to her. So now Jim is dead, the person that was the architect of this entire plan and the desire to have April dead. The actual hitman is dead. And the only person left to get was Fred, the connector. So on Monday, September 17, 2018, Fred's trial began. And every single person who was arrested testified against him that Fred was indeed the mastermind behind the drug ring and had also asked numerous people to kill April Kaufman. The star witness was an extremely nervous and guilty Andrew Glick. And in the days, really was not loving it. He was told that he wasn't going to have to testify because they said that if he got enough information on the wire, they would bring it to the doctor to cut a deal with the doctor. And then the doctor would testify against Fred because it was a stronger connection. But then when the doctor killed himself, they were like, sorry, man, you got to testify. So fucked up. <laughs> so fucked up. Good luck. Try not to get murdered afterwards. <laughs> Just this guy is like... Like a, a tragic clown figure in Shakespeare is what Andrew Glick is in this show. But in the end, it was successful for the prosecution and for justice for April because it only took two hours for the jury to find Fred guilty. Kim said the following in her victim impact statement. What most do not realize is the darkness that James Kaufman brought into our lives. He was evil, manipulative, abusive, abrasive, and narcissistic. We dealt with that for over 10 years. She was trying to escape. She was trying to leave. It was too late. She said, my life has changed so much. I've had people criticize me, whisper, point, stare at me. The conspiracy theories, the lies, rumors, and fabrications have brought me to my knees. I think where I am now in life is that I want peace. I want to move on. I don't want this to define me. I'm done with arguing with people or justifying this case to naysayers. I'm done with banter from defendants who continue to victimize me after everything I've endured. I've been very respectful to all defendants in this case, never speaking ill of them or stating my feelings. Everyone in this case had choices, choices of loyalty, the choice to tell the truth, the choice to refrain from committing such heinous acts, and the choice to say no and not get involved with this in the first place. I did not have a choice. My mother was ripped from my life, shot to death in her home. I've had to sit back and watch my mother's life be put up for auction had to stand by a headstone that read beloved wife. No matter what sentence anyone will serve in this case, it doesn't bring her back to us. 
I've decided the best way for me to heal is to forgive. I need to do this to live, to be happy, and enjoy what I have left of this beautiful life God has given me. Wow. Yeah. And then he's allowed to say something. Fred is allowed to make a statement, which is generally the time that you should apologize to the loved ones of your victim. And instead, Fred stands up and spends 30 minutes ranting about how he's innocent and everyone's an asshole except for him, which I think I read in the book that Kim left at some point or maybe even before he began speaking. So I'm glad that she was not in person subjected to that because it was ridiculous. Fred was sentenced to life in prison plus 30 years on top for leading the drug ring and for ordering the murder of April Kaufman. He will be eligible for parole when he is 117 years old. <laughs> so it is pretty safe to say that he will die behind bars. Yep. He does still have some followers that think he's innocent. There's a big amount of people on Facebook that think that this was something that the doctor went straight to Francis Mulholland with and that he wasn't involved and that he's just taking the rap for all of the other guys that were involved in the drug ring and not him. What happened with the pagans and Andrew? That is a good question. So most of the other defendants basically got off with a slap on the wrist and Andrew Glick was cleared of all charges due to his cooperation with the authorities. But this is not exactly a happy ending for him because there was multiple threats on his life and he was kind of doxxed by some other members of the pagans. So in the end, he was kicked out of South Jersey forever. He had to go into witness protection and get a whole new identity. And they were interviewing him with his face showing and everything, but he doesn't go by the name Andrew Glick anymore. And he lives in the middle of nowhere, as they put it on the show. And he doesn't exist. And he's sad because he misses his life and his friends and everything he had going on. But he said, I don't, I betrayed everyone and I did bad stuff and I deserve what I get. He said it's like uh, in Goodfellas at the end when he's getting the paper and he's like, I'm just an average schnook now. Yeah. Yeah. He said that's what his life is like now. So he's just an average schnook. The part of the um, documentary, he's talking to them while he's getting his whole tattoo covered up. The one tattoo that was like the one percenters and the pagans and everything, which was very difficult for him to get rid of. He thought he was going to die with that. So check out the film for your updates on Andrew Gluck, the great tragic anti-hero and clown of this story. Kim is grateful for justice, but it has never done much to resolve any feelings about the loss of her mother, of course. I think that it's really hard for anyone who doesn't have that type of relationship with their mother to totally understand that it's like a soulmate, sister, best friend, relationship as much as it is a mother relationship. So she still remains devastated. But a few weeks after Fred's trial, she unveiled her mother's new headstone. And April's headstone now reads, April Christine, loving mother and best friend, beloved grandmother and friend to all. Oh, cute. In conclusion, turns out it's not just dentists. There's a lot of deadly doctors in general out there, although this is our first endocrinologist. Oh, hopefully our last. <laughs> I hope so too. Also, like maybe just like go cruising or join the 99% of the motorcycle <laughs> clubs. Yeah, join the 99% of the motorcycling American public that aren't doing horrible crimes. Yes. 
And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love. Gotta bring this one back so no one ends up murder cycled. Wow. Remember that one? Yes. (laughs) From an old episode. Bye, guys. Bye. 